Today is from Hebrews chapter 3, starting with verse 1, going through chapter 4, 4, verse 13. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle, the high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For the house is built by somebody, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope, in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we have all come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. But for those who heard and yet rebelled, was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter his rest because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For the good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As it is said, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken on that on the seventh day in this way, God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it seems for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of their disobedience, again he appoints a certain day, today, saying through David so long afterwards in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, David. As we uh, prepare to think about God's word, I'm going to uh, lead us in a prayer, an old Anglican prayer, focused on uh, God needing God's help for thinking about his word. So uh, join with me in prayer. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You've had the opportunity to read the uh, annual reports that were sent out online on Friday. Uh, you might have seen that I'm just back from a 10-day uh, pastor's learning retreat in Savannah, Georgia. I think it was my ninth or 10th time uh, going to this retreat. The retreat used to be held at gordon Conwell Seminary in Boston, uh, but the professor who leads it has now retired to Savannah, and so it's a tough life having to go to Georgia in the middle of January, but someone has to do it. So that's where, where I was for uh, much of this month. There were about a dozen of us there. Ten of us are pretty much there every year, so it's become something of a band of brothers. And one of the things I really like about this retreat is just the, the, the daily rhythms that we, we have uh, during the time together. And part of that rhythm is that we begin and end the day with a short time of worship together. One of the songs we sang in that worship time uh, I wasn't familiar with, but part of the, the chorus went like this. Our souls declaring, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. And our song eternal, Jesus is better, make my heart believe. And it struck me as we sang that song that the preacher of this sermon that we call the book of Hebrews would most likely have approved of those lyrics because that repeated line has been and continues to be his theme through this sermon. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. The first recipients of this sermon were living in a very tense time, as we'll see later on in the series. They've already suffered for their faith. They're probably going to suffer more, face more suffering. But those early Christians were therefore likely wondering, you know, is it really worth it to be a Christian in this world? And the preacher wants to provide his listeners with an emphatic yes, and here's his reason why, because Jesus is better than anyone, better than anything, better than everything. So far in this sermon, he's explained to his listeners that Jesus is better than the prophets. He's also shown them that Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the angels because Jesus is God. And then two weeks ago, we saw Jesus is better than the angels because Jesus is human, well, in today's passage, the preacher shifts from uh, exposition to exhortation as he issues a series 
of warnings. I'd thought of summing up this passage uh, through the respective words of Tina Turner and then the band Journey, simply the best, better than all the rest, so don't stop believing. Or we'll adapt that a little bit for today's sermon in a sentence, which is this, that Jesus' rest is better than all the rest, so don't let your faith fail. We're going to think about this in three parts, Uh, a warning from the past, secondly, a promise for the future, and thirdly, an appeal for the present. Jesus' rest is better than all the rest, so don't let your faith fail. So first, a warning from the past. At the beginning of the passage that David read, chapter 3, 1 to 5, the preacher narrows his focus from Jesus being better than all the prophets, as he told us at the beginning of chapter 1, to now just one prophet in particular, that is Moses, the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets, because he was the only prophet of whom God said that he spoke to him face to face. But even in comparison to Moses, it's no contest. Jesus, as the Son of God over God's house, the preacher says, is worthy of more honor than Moses, who was a servant in God's house. Jesus is better than Moses. And it seems that the mention of God's house in verses 5 and 6 here gives the preacher the segue that he wants into what comes next. The end of verse 6, he says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now, this is one of those verses that perhaps troubles some of us because of that little word, if. We, we want to say, what do you mean, preacher, if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope? We say, you know, haven't you read what Jesus said, John six thirty seven? all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out? Or the Apostle Paul, Philippians 1, verse 6, that I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in me and in you will bring it to completion by the day of, of Jesus Christ. Well, then the preacher actually has the audacity to use the little word if again in verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So what's going on with these little ifs? Well, the Bible does indeed affirm God's sustaining power through Jesus to keep us faithful through life. And that's one of the really encouraging things that we we find, that to know that when you're seeking to trust and follow Jesus in the midst of difficult things, trying at times to persevere, even when you find it hard, Jesus wants you to know he's got you. He's looking after you. He'll never let you go. But at the same time, God knows that we need different messages at different times in our Christian lives. Because it's possible to become complacent at times. To to think that because you grew up in a Christian home or you prayed a prayer at a summer camp, that you're fine. And because you think you're fine, you don't actually make any real effort to fight against sin in your life or to, to live as a faithful follower of Jesus And so because of that, God appropriately issues some sober warnings also in the Bible. There are these constant exhortations for us to hold fast to our confidence in Christ to the end, and no more so than here in the book of Hebrews. The question always is not, what did you believe yesterday, but what do you believe now? What do you believe today? The evidence of past conversion is present convertedness. The true believer is the person who 
keeps believing. And to demonstrate that he's not messing around, the preacher takes his listeners here back to an Old Testament passage with which they, because of their Jewish background, they would have been most familiar. Psalm 95 was used as the call to worship every Sabbath evening when the synagogue community gathered together. We actually use the first part of the psalm in our call to worship this morning with its summons to praise and worship God. But the call to worship in the synagogue would have included the second half of the psalm as well, which carried with it a health warning. It's that part of the psalm that the preacher quotes here in chapter 3, verses 7 to 11. Let me read it again. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And the preacher doesn't just quote that section once. He comes back to parts of it again in chapter 3, verse 15, in chapter 4, verses 3 and 5 and 7. It's going to be central to his exhortation that he makes to, to his listeners. And just to emphasize again that the issue is not what you believe yesterday, but what you believe now. The preacher picks up on the first word of this passage today, and he keeps repeating it. Verse 7, verse 13, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 7. Now, why would he draw on Psalm 95 here? Well, Psalm 95 in itself is actually a reflection on what we read further back in the Old Testament, in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 to 14, after the Israelites had escaped from Egypt. God had rescued them. He'd brought them through the Red Sea. But at that point, the story stalls. Even though they had seen God's power firsthand, they grumbled in the wilderness and they balked at entering the land of Canaan. God had told Moses to send some men to spy out the land of Canaan, to return with gathered intelligence with regard to the land and its population. When those spies return, they bring abundant evidence of the fruitfulness of the land. But all the spies, apart from Joshua and Caleb, also report that it's a land to strike fear in their hearts with its fortified cities and its giant inhabitants. God had promised to give them the land, but they didn't trust him to give them the land. And so God said, none of that generation will enter the promised land. The preacher emphasizes this again, verse 19, they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Problem was a lack of trust. Elsewhere in the chapter, the preacher diagnoses Israel's problem as a hardness of heart, as a, as a testing of God, as a going astray, a rebellion, sin. Chapter 3, verse 18, as disobedience. Because you see, a lack of trust always leads in our lives to a failure to obey. Scott Hafman, the professor who led the pastor's retreat, is fond of saying that the hymn, Trust and Obey, should really be Trust Obey, because those two things are really just the two sides of the same coin. And I think the preacher here would agree that he, he can't envision any kind of faith that doesn't lead to obedience, nor of any obedience that doesn't stem from faith. So here were the Israelites encamped on the edge of Canaan, the promise within their grasp, their trek through the desert almost over. But at the critical moment, they refused to trust, obey God. 
their refusal to listen to the voice of God actually brings before us here in this passage this shocking truth that a participation in the redemption provided by God, those, sorry, a participant in the redemption provided by God can still choose to disbelieve God. That's the preacher's warning from the past. It brings us then, secondly, to his uh, God's uh, promise for the future, a, prom- a future that has everything to do with rest. Look at chapter 4, 1 to 3. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. That's maybe a little tricky to follow the exact line of argument, so let's unpack this a little bit. I mean, if this, if this is a par- passage characterized by rest, well, our world is characterized by anything but right now, right? And we're characterized by unrest. That's a pretty accurate word to sum up our world right now, whether it's political unrest, social unrest, personal unrest, that we have this distinct sense of being, of, of dis-ease in our lives. And the remedy, according to the Bible, to this unrest is always centered on God himself. That is, rest in the Bible can never be divorced from God's person. Notice that as the preacher quotes from Psalm 95, God refers to this rest as my rest. That the ultimate focus in this rest is our relationship with God, particularly in this future world that is away from this present broken world. And the promise of entering that rest, says the preacher to us, it still stands. What's of particular interest here in Hebrews 4 is that the language of rest covers three distinct different realities. The first and original rest was, of course, God's rest on the seventh day. Back in Genesis, the preacher mentions that in verse 4. If you go back and read Genesis 1 and 2, you'll discover that while the description of each of the first six days in creation end with the words, there was evening, there was morning, the first day, the second day, the third day, and so forth, you, you don't find that formula on the seventh day. That is, the seventh day has never ended. The seventh day, we're still in the seventh day of God's rest. God's seventh day rest is an everlasting rest of delight and satisfaction in what God has made, a rule of, a rest of ruling and reigning over his creation. In Genesis 2, we see humans flourishing in the context of participating in God's Sabbath rest. But then in chapter 3 in Genesis, sin enters the world. And this world becomes a world of unrest. Suddenly our sin has caused this alienation from God, which results in this monumental shift from rest to unrest. And yet God in his grace and mercy there announces a plan to restore the creation so that we might still enjoy his rest as we were originally meant to do. So the first rest is God's rest, creation rest. Second description of rest that the preacher brings up is the rest of the promised land of Canaan for the Israelites. Now, that was never intended by God to be the 
the final rest, the ultimate rest. It was always intended as a foreshadowing, a picture of a future final rest for the people of God. But as the preacher highlights over and over again in this passage, that generation of Israelites failed to enter this rest of the promised land because of their unbelief, because of their disobedience. And that then takes us then to the third type of rest he's talking about, for chapter 4, 8 to 10, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This third and ultimate rest is a future rest promised to us that will rescue us from this world of unrest. It's the glorious rest promised to the faithful followers of Christ who will, who will enter into it when Jesus returns. And elsewhere in Hebrews, in this sermon, the preacher refers to this rest in terms of place, the city that has foundations, a homeland, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the kingdom that cannot be shaken, a city to come. And just as God rested from his works on the seventh day with delight and satisfaction and celebration, so we too will rest from our works and enter the unparalleled celebration and joy of that rest into a reality beyond our wildest dreams and imaginations. But as with the promised land of Canaan rest, the preacher wants us to grasp that this glorious rest can only be accessed by those who have firm faith. And that brings us then to our third main point, and in a way where the preacher is driving through this entire section, which is an appeal for the present. This passage is peppered with exhortations for us to heed. Look at these three. Chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Chapter 4, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. In this week's Throwback Thursday, I mentioned the three stages of a life cycle that we sometimes talk about around here, incline, recline, and decline, and I made the point that when you're in the recline stage, it, it feels fairly healthy. Feels like death and decline are as far away as possible. They feel like an impossibility, but the reality is that in, when you're in the recline stage of a life cycle, that unless you develop and initiate a new cycle of incline with vision and purpose and intentionality, you're going to move from recline to decline fairly rapidly. And someone emailed me back after I sent that out on Thursday and, and asked, you know, can, can you ever just enjoy the recline stage for a bit without falling into decline? And, and I actually don't think you can. And certainly in terms of the Christian life, the preacher doesn't really think you can either. Do you sense his urgency here? Make sure you don't fall away from the living God. Strive. Spare no effort. Give it all that you've got to enter that rest. Be fearful of, of failing to find that rest. I mean, the Bible says there are good fears and there are bad fears. Well, here's something that he says we all should fear, perhaps more than anything else in our lives, failing to reach God's rest. 
The preacher wants us to grasp the sobering reality that we're all just a few steps away from being hardened by sin. Not just a few steps away from sin. That's bad enough. Now, this is worse. This is being hardened by sin. That is sinning and then seeking to justify your sin so that you become deaf to the very voice of God. And that should send a shiver of fear down our spines when we read these verses. I mean, I see the danger in my own life when I sin and then I want to excuse that sin and then I avoid challenges to that sin. And the reason that it's so easy for us to fall into this spiral, the preacher says, is because sin is the great deceiver. Look again at chapter 3, 12 to 13. Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is a warning for every single one of us. Those of us here, those of us watching, notice verse 12, the words, any of you, any of you, Because it's very possible that some of us listening to this are thinking, well, you know, I'm okay. I don't need to listen to this warning because I believe in God. But the preacher's whole point here is that the Israelites could have said the exact same thing. They would have said, yeah, we believe in God. It's precisely those of us who don't see any threat here that are in particular danger of becoming hardened by sin's deceitfulness. The preacher here is calling on us to detect the complex ways that sin deceives us. He wants us to understand that we all have this inbuilt insensitivity to our true spiritual state, that we easily succumb to moral indifference, and uh, which is made worse by an overexposure to certain sins in our lives, to distraction by our busy lives, and by the belief that, there, well, surely there are other things besides God that can make me happy in this life. Incidentally, a little plug here, one of the things I really like about the Life Explored course that we're starting tomorrow night online is how it helps us to think about those things in our lives which we perhaps come to believe could bring happiness in our lives but never, ever deliver on their promises. If you want to be part of that, just just let us know. Because you see, the pursuit of those things, if left unchecked, leads not only to spiritual complacency and moral laxity, in the end, the preacher says, it leads to us falling away from the living God. And that is what we should fear more than anything else in our lives. But notice here how the preacher says we can fight back against the deceitfulness of sin. Verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I brought us to this verse a number of times over, over the recent years and explained the importance of this exhortation uh, this way. If you can imagine sin to be like frigid air, just as we've been experiencing the last few days, and then if you think of your heart as this bucket of water, and if you were crazy enough to go camping in that kind of frigid, freezing temperatures, you would have to be disciplined if you were needing to have water to, to keep breaking the ice on the surface of the water in that bucket of water because the ice keeps naturally forming. If you don't keep breaking it, the next thing you know is you'll go back there a few hours later looking for water to drink or to cook with and it'll be frozen, perhaps even frozen solid. And that's what our hearts are like. Left unchecked, our hearts get hard 
through the deceitfulness of sin. And in verse 13, the writer says, one major way you're going to avoid freezing is this. You and I need Christians around us in our lives to hold us accountable and to encourage us every single day. For this preacher, there's only two days that really matter. There's the last day and there's today. Today's the day to make sure I'm ready for that last day. But today's also the day that we take seriously the call in our lives to exhort and encourage one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, so that they don't get hardened by sin either. I think if we're honest, we have to admit that it's been much more of a challenge to practice this kind of encouragement to one another during this past year. We've been much more isolated from one another than usual, and that's just made it harder. But actually, to that end, in the next few weeks, we're going to be rolling out a new resource to try to help all of us to just be a little bit better equipped to encourage one another. It's something called the Daily Prayer Project. It'll be available in booklet form and also by daily email. And we'll provide this short liturgy of morning and evening prayers and scripture readings for all of us to practice, either individually or in our families. One of the benefits of doing something like this together is it not only provides us with the encouragement of knowing that others in our church family are reading and praying the same thing each day that we are, but it also provides opportunities later in the day to talk or to text or to message one another with what we've been reading, what we've been praying. I really hope as many of us as possible will take advantage of, of the Daily Prayer Project, in addition, of course, to all the other ways that we can be encouraging one another in these challenging days. In this, in this appeal for the present, this third point, the preacher has quoted this line from Psalm 95 three times. He says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The key here is to keep the communication channel open so that we hear God's voice, which is why the preacher concludes this section with these words about God's voice, that is, about the word of God. Chapter 4, 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, I imagine some of us are fairly familiar with those words. They're quite famous words. But we usually think of them as stand-alone verses and not in their original context. Because in the context of Hebrews 4, they're here as another warning as to why we need to strive to enter God's rest and why we should do everything in our, in our ability to avoid unbelief and disobedience. The preacher wants us to understand that the word of God is powerful and effective and that those who ignore it or disobey it will not escape judgment. And to make that point, the preacher compares God's word to a double-edged sword. Now, why does he use the metaphor of a sword here? It's actually because the preacher still has in the back of his mind Numbers 13 and 14 that he's already been thinking about. Because back in Numbers 14, when the Israelites defied God and tried to enter the, the land, the promised land, after God had told them that they couldn't enter it because of their disobedience, what happens? Well, the Israelites are driven back, 
and they're cut down by the sword, same word, the sword of the Amalekites and the Canaanites. And now he says, we face the word of God. And he tells us it's sharper than any human sword because it exposes our thoughts. It reveals whether we're truly trusting in God such that we will enter his rest. And he wants us to understand if we don't keep trusting, God knows, God sees, and his word will cut us down in judgment as that sword did to the disobedient Israelites. Hebrews 3 to 4 is a sobering passage, a very sobering passage, because there's no wiggle room here for a lukewarm faith or a coasting faith or an ambivalent faith. And consequently, it's entirely possible to come away from a passage like this wondering, you know, just if our own individual personal faith is up to the challenge. We, we feel like that man who comes to Jesus and says, yeah, I believe, but help my unbelief. And that's why it's so important to see that God's word is not only sharp and piercing, but it is also supportive and comforting. Look with me as we close at how this passage is bookended. Chapter 3, 1 to 2. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him. Chapter 4, verse 14, the end. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. All through this passage, we're being asked, are you, are you willing to continue to be faithful to God? And at the beginning and at the end of the passage, we get the reason why we can be confident in answering that question with, yes, I will be faithful, because our ultimate confidence is not in ourselves. It's in the sustaining faithfulness of Jesus as our great high priest. Jesus, who was faithful to his calling, so came into this world and died on a cross to take the penalty for all our failures. It's the same Jesus who then rose from the dead and ascended back to heaven and who now is as our living and eternal high priest interceding for us at this very moment and through the rest of this day and through the rest of this week and on and on reminding us that we're not alone, that we haven't been abandoned in this hostile and indifferent world, but that he gives himself to us through his spirit to enable us to strive to enter God's rest. In the end, it's the faithfulness of our high priest, Jesus, that gives us the confidence that we have all that we need in order to make it to the finish line. And that's ultimately what matters most in all of our lives. But he says, you've got to keep striving. You've got to keep making every effort. Don't give up. Jesus' rest is better than all the rest. So don't let your faith fail. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what is indeed a challenging word to us, but also one that reminds us that every promise that you, every demand that you give to us is backed up by your promise. You never ask us to do anything that you don't equip us to do. And so as you call on us to strive to enter this rest, we thank you that Jesus, you're our great high priest who is sustaining us, interceding for us right now. We thank you that you've done everything necessary so that we might heed your call 
that we might listen to your voice, that we might be obedient. Help us, we pray, for we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.